Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this episode of Linguistics with Laura. Now, that sentence that I just said, you probably didn't have to think very much about, especially since it was a pretty standard, basic greeting type of sentence. But it still required lots of processing in your brain, believe it or not. And that very processing is what we're going to discuss in this episode. The name for the subbranch of linguistics regarding the brain and its language processing skills is called psycholinguistics. Psych, of course, is a prefix referring to the brain and the self, and linguistics, of course, refers to the study of language. As you probably already know, lots of different processes occur in the left and right sides of your brain, and many of these processes are unique to their respective sides. For example, a significant portion of language is processed in the left side of your brain, though that's not to say there isn't a good portion processed in the right side of your brain as well. Syntactic aspects of language, which can be very mathematical, systematic, and scientific, are processed mainly in the left side of your brain. More semantic aspects of language, aka language meanings, concepts, and implications, are a little bit more right-brain focused. So how do we process and comprehend language? Well, to start, successful language comprehension requires what is called parallel processing, which refers to segmenting continuous speech into phonemes, morphemes, words, and phrases, looking up words in the mental lexicon, placing them in a coherent structure, and interpreting phrases, sentences, and constituents. Psycholinguists believe that listeners make guesses as to what or what not to expect next in a sentence, eliminating the need for unneeded processing. Have you ever seen those vintage memes floating around Facebook where you think you read a sentence correctly, but turns out you didn't realize that there were two thes in the picture? This would be an example of our ability to predict what's expected and ignore what is unlikely in language. When we speak, words are chosen and sequenced way ahead of when they are articulated. In other words, our word choices don't just spew out of our mouths like lava, even if they feel like they do. We have a very complex and unconscious knowledge of syntax in our minds that allows us to plan clauses well in advance before we say them. Our thoughts form these constituents, which then combine to make sentences. The clause is therefore essential to the point and meaning that a person is conveying. For sentences that have complex and unique syntactic structure, like when a sentence doesn't follow the typical subject-verb-object order, even more planning is involved. So, basically, anytime you're trying to reach the word count on an essay and you're writing an extremely long and wordy sentence, kind of like this one, just think about how much processing your brain is doing. Understanding a sentence involves more than merely recognizing its individual words, but the listener must also determine the syntactic relations among the words and phrases. This is referred to as parsing. Listeners actively build a structural representation of a sentence as they hear it. They must therefore decide for each incoming word what its grammatical category is, so verb, adjective, noun, etc., and how this word fits into the sentence structure that is being built. Here's a fun fact for you. Bilingual people seem to have different neural pathways for their two languages, and both are active when either language is used. So as a result, bilingual people are constantly suppressing one of their languages in order to process and focus on the relevant one. The first evidence for this came out of an experiment in 1999 where English-Russian bilinguals were asked to manipulate objects on a table. In Russian, they were told to, quote, put the stamp below the cross. 
but the Russian word for stamp is marka, which sounds similar to marker, and eye tracking revealed that the bilinguals looked back and forth between the marker, pen, and the stamp on the table before they actually selected the stamp. So there are two main ways we can make sense of linguistic stimuli. The first is called bottom-up processing, which refers to step-by-step -step movements from incoming and acoustic or visual signals, phonemes, morphemes, words, and phrases, etc. So basically, semantic interpretation. Top-down processing, on the other hand, refers to the listeners relying on higher-level semantic, syntactic, and contextual information to analyze the acoustic signal they're receiving. As I said before, people perceive what's going to come afterwards because of what they're used to. They anticipate what will be conveyed. Similarly, if someone coughs while they're speaking a word, listeners can fill in what phonemes were missed during the cough. This is something called phoneme restoration. Basically, all you have to know with top-down processing and bottom-up processing is that we process language both based on solely what we hear, but also the context surrounding us. Contrary to what you might think, we're not always conscious of how our brain processes syntax and speech. In fact, it's rather similar to the unconscious process of digesting food. Have you ever tried to sit and listen to the English language and stop understanding what the words mean and only hear the sounds themselves all jumbled up together like one big cacophony? Well, you may have tried to do this, but it's pretty much impossible. Your brain processes language so fast and so efficiently that you can't help but to understand language. In fact, your brain processes language at an average rate of 20 phonemes per second. Visually impaired people who rely on a sped-up synthetic voice to read written material can comprehend speech at rates near 100 phonemes per second. There's another fun fact for you there. In our minds, we have mechanisms that allow us to break the continuous stream of speech sounds into smaller units like phonemes, syllables, words, etc. When we put these smaller units together, we make unique and meaningful sentences. As we talked about in our phonetics and phonology episodes, speech is a continuous signal. In natural speech, sounds overlap and influence each other, and yet listeners have the impression that they are hearing discrete units such as words, morphemes, syllables, and phonemes. Even when speakers have different accents, or maybe if people are listening to some form of distorted speech, we humans have the remarkable ability to understand what is being said. For example, when making the sounds D, do, and da, the d sound in each of these utterances is actually slightly different from the others, but our brain is so adept at understanding phonemes that we don't consciously recognize the difference. So thanks to all those wrinkles up there for doing us a solid in understanding language. Here's yet another fun fact. If you read a sentence about kicking a ball, neurons related to the motor function of your leg and foot will be activated in your brain. Also, if you talk about cooking garlic, neurons associated with smelling will fire up. As I talked about in my episode on language and thought, it is nearly impossible to do or think anything without using language. Not totally impossible, but nearly. Language is incredibly pervasive to our minds, really more so than any other skill. Regions of what are called your frontal, temporal, and parietal lobes formulate what you want to say when producing a sentence. Your motor cortex, which is in your frontal lobe, is what allows you to physically speak the words. We push air out of the lungs through a body part called the glottis, which causes the vocal cords to vibrate. These vibrations push air out that escapes through the mouth and sometimes the nose. So what part of the brain is responsible for hearing sounds? 
This would be the auditory ventral stream, also known as the what pathway, because, well, it's comprehending what is being said. There's also something called the where pathway, more scientifically known as the auditory dorsal stream. This path is responsible for sound localization, hence the term where pathway. Specifically, each vowel sound that we make is characterized by dark bands called formants, which differ in placement according to that particular vowel. Each vowel has its own unique formant frequencies, which account for vowel properties that allow us to differentiate vowels from one another. There are also ways to view these differences between speech sounds using a visual aid called a spectrogram. A spectrogram shows thin vertical lines which indicate a small opening and closing of the vocal cords. When these little striations are far apart, the vocal cords vibrate slowly, thus the pitch is low, and on the flip side, when these striations are close together, the vocal cords are vibrating rapidly, thus the pitch is high. Finally, we have the visual cortex, which, logically, is where your brain processes visual cues that it understands to be language. This one's pretty straightforward, you know, eyes, rods, cones, and all that stuff. So, what happens when we lose language? Somewhat ironically, language processing can actually get pretty fascinating and pretty complicated when it comes to language disorders. The term for any type of language disorder is something called aphasia. There are a couple different types of aphasia that relate directly to specific areas of the brain. The first type is something called Wernicke's aphasia, which occurs when people have trouble comprehending language, but can still produce language fluently. They just may utter sentences that are jumbled or a bit nonsensical. The term Wernicke comes from German neurologist Karl Wernicke, who discovered that the area is related to how words and syllables are pronounced. On the flip side, Broca's aphasia occurs when people have trouble producing language, but can still comprehend language. Their motor cortex struggles to move in ways that allow them to efficiently communicate. The term Broca comes from physician Pierre-Paul Broca, who discovered an impaired ability to produce speech in two patients who had suffered damage to that region of the brain. The most severe type of aphasia, however, is something called global aphasia. When people have global aphasia, they can no longer read or write. This typically occurs after someone suffers a stroke. Funny enough, we can learn a lot about how our brain processes language based on our speech errors as well. Many different slips of the tongue actually occur throughout daily speech, and as much as we can try not to make these errors, they will happen occasionally. Many of these errors are the result of our brain glitching for a split second and processing information too fast for us to articulate. Even with errors, though they are incorrect because that's the definition of an error, there are still lots of linguistic rules that apply. In fact, spontaneous errors show that the rules of morphology and syntax are also applied or misapplied when we speak. Linguist and professor Victoria Fromkin of UCLA focuses lots of her linguistic studies on slips of the tongue, mishearing, and other speech errors that relate to our brain's processing of language, and she studied lots of the errors that I'm about to discuss. So first, let's talk about syntactic errors. Take the sentence, I must let the house out of the cat. Obviously, or at least I would assume this is obvious, the sentence should say, I must let the cat out of the house. Notice how the two words that were switched, house and cat, are both nouns. This demonstrates evidence for the fact that even during speech errors, English syntactic structures are preserved. One time I was talking with my mom about two of our extended family members who own a boat, and instead of saying Debbie and Jean's boat, I said, most intelligently, Debbie and Boat's Jean. Notice how, once again, both of the words that are substituted 
are members of the same syntactic category, so logical syntax is preserved. This goes for other syntactic categories of words too, like for example saying, it waits to pay, instead of, it pays to wait. Both of these words that are switched are verbs. The next type of error is phonological substitution. This occurs when we make errors to the phonemes that we use in words. The first type of phonological error is preservation. Take the sentence, John gave the goy a watermelon, instead of John gave the boy a watermelon. The g in gave is incorrectly preserved. The next type of phonological error is anticipation. I think I do this one a lot. An example of this would be saying, all show share, instead of also share. Here, we're jumping the gun on the sh sound. The last type of phonological substitution is feature substitution. So, for example, pop taps instead of pop tabs. We're switching the second p in pop for the b in tab. Sometimes we even substitute whole words for other words that sound similar. Like when Michael Scott from The Office says, I am not to be truffled with, instead of I am not to be trifled with. Or, for example, sometimes it takes me a second to remember the difference in meaning between the words generally and genuinely, not because they have similar meanings, but because they sound similar. They have the same onset or beginning, they have the same number of syllables, and they are stressed the same way. The next branch of speech errors are lexical or word selection errors. Have you ever said one thing but meant to say the opposite? For example, something like, it's too damn cold in here, when you really mean, it's too damn hot in here. Our brains associate the words hot and cold together, ironically, as common adjectives describing temperature. We also do this with the words that are not antonyms. For example, saying, all I need is something for my feet, when you really mean, all I need is something for my hands. The next type of speech error, one of my favorites that I do quite often, maybe because my brain is constantly scattered all over the place, is the blend error. This occurs when you blend two synonyms into one. For example, my stummy hurts. You're blending the words stomach and tummy into the word stummy. How lovely. Here's another one. There's a breeze blowing through the room. This one combines draft and breeze. The next one has a fun name. This is called a spoonerism. A spoonerism occurs when the speaker accidentally switches the initial sounds or letters of two words. The famous example of this is, you have hissed all the mystery lectures, instead of, you have missed all the history lectures. These types of speech errors tend to have rather humorous results, but they also show that features, segments, words, and phrases may be conceptualized well before they are uttered and involve units larger than the single phonemic segment of a word. Next, we have the morphological branch of errors, where we accidentally add inappropriate affixes to our desired word. So, for example, I haven't sat down yet. Another type of morpheme error is morpheme substitution, for example saying a timeful remark instead of a timely remark. And then, of course, we must talk about the infamous Freudian slip. This occurs when a person speaks something unintentionally that they meant to conceal because it reveals some subconscious feelings. Some examples of this are a child calling their teacher mom because they miss their mother and seek both their teacher and their mom for guidance. However, these can sometimes get a lot more embarrassing, like saying, so, I'll lick you up after work then, instead of pick up. Or, when your science teacher makes you do what you dread every day and read from the textbook to the class, and you accidentally say orgasm instead of organism. Everyone has one of these moments. Well, at least I think so. Unfortunately for us humans who depend on constant social validation, the more nervous we get, 
the more likely we are to make speech errors. So while it may be awkward while you're trying to ask someone out because you ask them if they want to go eat a movie and see dinner, just know that it happens to everyone, and it's just the result of your brain processing what you want to say too fast for your mouth. In the end, speech errors support all of linguists' previous knowledge about the building blocks, patterns, grammar, and other features of language. So if you think about it, speech errors are really anything but random and actually make a lot of sense. Language comprehension is enormously complex in ways that we don't even fully understand. Just like consciousness itself, language processing in the brain is heavily related to memory, and to a certain extent, there's probably always going to be some elements of mystery to it. But that's what makes it cool, and the more we figure out about it, the more we get to understand those wildly complicated wrinkles inside our skulls. And with that, this concludes our episode for today. Tune in next time for my final episode of the series on how we can apply linguistics to our everyday lives moving forward. Now go out there and keep processing language. See you next time here on Linguistics with Laura.